the approach that my team has been taking and we've been leading this charge in Australia is trying to develop a blood test. A bit like we have a cholesterol test for heart disease, can we have a, an amyloid-like test or, or protein or you know, reflecting Alzheimer's disease in the blood? And we've already identified at least three proteins that are reflecting the amyloid in the brain with great accuracy. Uh, so uh, I would envisage within the next five to ten years where we'd be having a blood test for Alzheimer's. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from the leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by a real expert and a pioneer in Alzheimer's disease research, Professor Ralph Martins. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Nathan. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me. Now, I was usually tell the audience what town or city that uh, the, the guest is in, but it's a little bit more difficult with you because you seem to be, bet- um, you've chosen two sort of distant areas of Australia you toggle between doing your Alzheimer's research. So uh, can you describe um, yeah, your role and where you work? And, and I'm curious, how do you do it? <laughs> uh, the last question is a hard one. <laughs> I'm still not even sure I've got an answer to that one, but uh, uh, I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm the professor of aging and, and um, uh, aging and Alzheimer's at Edith Cowan University, where we have a center of excellence for Alzheimer's research and care, and that's where my 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 team has been working for the last uh, over t- 20 years. Um, so we have a big program in in, in Perth at ECU, uh, and I'm also in the last uh, six years been a professor of neurobiology at Macquarie University, where I'm building a team here. Uh, working on Alzheimer's and particularly leading prevention clinical trials um, and also looking at blood biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. So that's basically my focus, uh, early diagnosis and prevention of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but we, besides my two teams that are in Perth and in, in Sydney, uh, we have very strong collaboration throughout the country, uh, particularly with our colleagues in Melbourne, uh, and the CSIRO, so it's a strong national effort. Right, right. And I invite you on today, obviously you're an expert, and we'll dive into all the areas around Alzheimer's. I'm particularly interested in exploring beta amyloid, and I was um, pleasantly shocked. I didn't realize, but you were part of the team that first discovered beta amyloid. So can you, um, before we get into that, can you, yeah, just, yeah, give us an outline on your background and also i usually try and read as many articles on the um guests as possible but it's impossible with you they've got like hundreds and hundreds of citations i didn't realize the the depth of your research so can you just again we could take the whole podcast describing that but give a little bit of a sketch on your your background and how you got into alzheimer's and your early days there yes um i uh was trained as a biochemist so I try to look and understanding the molecular basis of disease. Uh, and uh, I had a job lined up in New Zealand uh, to do my postdoc following my PhD. But I wanted to learn a little bit about Alzheimer's because my wife's uh, father had Alzheimer's quite early in his, in his 60s, early 60s. 
And at that time, in the 80s, it was a black box, which no one knew much about uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, except when you're dead, they look at your brain and they say you've got Alzheimer's. So it's, you know, they couldn't even diagnose it during life with any certainty. Um, and I was fortunate to, to, to be given a job with Professor Colin Masters, who's now in Melbourne and is a long-term collaborator of mine. Um, uh, but Professor Masters was, is a neuropathologist by training, so he looks at the brain after people are dead. And uh, I, being a biochemist, I want to know what was the cause of, of this uh, pathology in the brain. Uh, and so I was very fortunate that under the leadership of Professor Masters, we isolated these uh, these structures that are building up in the brain called amyloid plaques. And in collaboration with our colleagues in Germany, we showed that uh, the major protein in these plaques was a protein called beta amyloid. So in the mid 80s, uh, beta amyloid became basically uh, the focus of Alzheimer's research, but hundreds of labs throughout the world now have been focusing their attention on it. And, and the data is very profound. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, people who have mutations in the APP gene, APP basically is the amyloid precursor protein, it's the parent molecule that is a much larger protein that when it gets metabolized under certain conditions release amyloid. Uh, so if you have mutations in this gene, people definitely get Alzheimer's, they get it relatively early. But there are a couple of other genes. One gene is called presenilin-1, and the other one is called presenilin-2, as in presenile. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the presenilin one is the most common, but both them, if you have mutations in this gene, you definitely get Alzheimer's. And these two uh, genes uh, basically uh, uh, play a role in in the metabolism of APP. So they're all interlinked, uh, except the presenilin one, it happens much earlier. We've had people in their 20s, for example, with clinical symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Um, wow. And when you make animal models, uh, you clearly show that uh, if you have these particular mutations, you get the pathology and the disease. So this was probably the strongest evidence to indicate that you know uh, amyloid is a key feature of Alzheimer's disease. We also knew at the time that people with Down syndrome, they have mm. an extra uh, copy of chromosome 21, and the, the APP gene is on chromosome 21, so they get an extra dose of, of APP, and therefore amyloid, and they get amyloid in their brain much earlier. So this right. is the kind of evidence that really has been very compelling to show that amyloid is a key player of Alzheimer's. Yeah. Was there also research, I looked at this a little while ago, uh, that showed there's, is it Icelandic population? There's a generic um, variant there where they're immune to to developing uh, better amyloid? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, it's not towards the population, it's just particular individuals. Uh, who have a, who have a, a, a mutation? So when we think of mutations, we think of them as being bad. So most mm. of them that are uh, that are identified initially and in Australia and around the world, if you have that mutation in the APP gene, you get Alzheimer's. That means you make more amyloid as a result of that mutation. But in a few rare instances, and it's not just the Icelandic, there's a couple of cases. One in New, in New Zealand as well, where the mutation has a protective effect. It prevents the production of amyloid. So again, yeah. that, uh, 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 you're right, that's added evidence to show all the more that A-beta is central to the you're pathogenesis right. of Alzheimer's disease. Out of curiosity, is there any trade-offs? Like often um, there's benefit to some molecules and uh, and like some suggest that beta amyloid is mopping up infections or toxins and things. Do you know if these people yes. have yes. any side effects? <laughs> 
Yes, so um, uh, beta amyloid uh, definitely uh, plays an important role um, uh, as an antimicrobial agent. And uh, you know, I'm very proud uh, to say that uh, uh, the person who really has spearheaded this research was uh, my research assistant, Colin Masters, PhD student, an Australian called Dr. Robert Moy, uh, who is doing fantastic stuff at Harvard, uh, but sadly uh, recently passed away from a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. But yes, uh, that, that is uh, going very, very exciting evidence to indicate that it plays this role. We also know that beta amyloid in low concentrations uh, acts as an antioxidant. So I guess the message here is you don't want to get rid of all the beta amyloid. You want to get the levels down. So as levels go up uh, with disease and you want to bring it down to a normal level. It's a bit like cholesterol. We all need cholesterol for our membranes, for our brains, for everything. But uh, too much leads to heart disease. Same analogy. You want want a drug that that, that levels are down to a a normal level. So there's been some um, controversy, at least sort of in the popular press, around beta amyloid, um, that the fact that lowering it, say, with the animal models and that the drug trials have successfully lowered beta amyloid yet hasn't really made much impact into to cognition and memory and so forth. Uh, what's your your take on... And that's just sort of the, the you know, high-level um, popular press view. I'm sure there's some nuance to it. So, yeah, what is the nuance around that? What's your views on, on this? Um, yeah, these so, views? so uh, I think beta amyloid has come in for a lot of criticism because it is the most studied of, of the approaches for mm-hmm. targeting Alzheimer's disease. Uh, some people argue, why are you putting so much money into, into beta amyloid research when there are other areas to look at? And that's a fair uh, statement for some people to make. But if you look at the evidence, and the most compelling evidence has been coming from beta amyloid, so that's why that we believe that's the most important area to look at, uh, but not at the expense of other uh, areas such as tau, uh, uh, which is another major feature of Alzheimer's disease. In animal models, there is no question. There are hundreds of trials being done is that if, uh, if you can bring the amyloid down, uh, you not only can clean the brain of amyloid, and that's where the first vaccine approaches were taken, clean the amyloid of uh, the brain of amyloid, but also improve the memory. Okay, so animal is, is, is a done deal. When they went to humans, a lot of the studies uh, um, showed and took them a long time to refine their, their approaches to eventually bring amyloid right down. So the drug that was released in the US a couple of years ago was called aducanumab. It's it's a it's a passive uh, uh, approach of uh, getting uh, by injecting a- antibodies into patients intravenously, and that had a very significant impact on bringing the amyloid down to almost normal, you know. So it came close, but that drug had not shown an improvement in memory. So some people were not uh, appreciate, uh, were, you know, were not happy with that. But a lot of the public patients who have got Alzheimer's, they're willing to take it. Mm. Uh, and, and it may be that you've got to start much earlier. And that's what a lot of our trials are now focusing on, early um, detection. And we can use, amyloid. we can talk a bit more about that. We can use uh, a, um, PET amyloid imaging to pick up uh, Alzheimer's much earlier. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, that... Yeah, yep. but, but uh, uh, very recently, as of uh, January this year, uh, the second drug that's come out is called lecanemab, and this drug not only brings the amyloid even lower than the 
the, the previous drug, it's also shown to have a benefit on memory in the early stages. So this okay. is giving us a lot of hope. Uh, yeah. So I think finally now we're getting some return for all this investment in this area. And there's a pipeline of drugs to follow. So the first in class is not best in class. We're going to see better and better drugs coming through. Uh, okay. so, so, so that's really, uh, I think, a game changer. Uh, uh, it's come in the U.S. already, but we expect it to be in Australia by probably by the middle of, or, or middle towards the end of this year, in the last, in probably next nine months. Uh, and, and I think that's fantastic. Uh, I, personally, I think it'll be more beneficial early in the disease yeah. or even preclinically. We need to get yeah. more information about the preclinical work, but I think that's where it's going to be most effective. Yeah. So that's my next set of questions was on uh, the onset of the disease. So uh, again, I've seen a couple of graphs and I'm, I can't, quite picture them in my mind at the moment, but amyloid starts accumulating well before any sort of cognitive signs. And there are there other, other uh, abnormalities that begin occurring years and even decades prior to the onset of Alzheimer's? Yes, uh, you're quite right there, uh, that um, people uh, uh, can uh, have preclinical Alzheimer's as we know it now, and it might even change even more in the future, at least two decades before the onset of symptoms. And, you know, and we've got to really give Australia a, a big recognition for this. And this is, the, like I said, this partnership. Collaboration is key. It's been a partnership between my team in, in, in Perth at Edith Cowan University, our colleagues in Melbourne at the Flory Institute, the Austin Hospital, and the CSIRO, so it's a huge national collaboration. And what we did about almost 20 years ago is we we set up a cohort of people. We we aim for a thousand, and we've got another 1,200 since. Uh, and they were in all stages of of uh, the disease, from healthy people to people who have what we call mild cognitive impairment to people with uh, early stage Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and we've been following these people every 18 months. So it's, a, it's, one, it's one of the world's most comprehensive, mm. uh, 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 what do you call it, observation trials, uh, longitudinal studies that's been done. The only uh, uh, cohort of note that's equivalent is in the US uh, called ADNI, Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging. Uh, and we work collaboratively with, with ADNI, uh, but you can just see the difference in budgets. Same number, <laughs> we actually have more. Theirs is a $60 million a year uh, program. Ours is a three to five million dollar a year program. So we are doing it on the, uh, you know, under very difficult conditions at times. And yet, yeah, they, they acknowledge that we've been outstanding. <laughs> and and one of the things we showed, and where I was going with that was that uh, the first outcome that was really powerful from that study was uh, uh, we were able to image everybody for amyloid uh, that we looked at uh, at the time, and we found that. 98% of people who were clinical Alzheimer's disease were amyloid positive. So that's very definitive. Uh, but what was very exciting for, for us at the time, and still is, is healthy people. So when I say healthy, they are cognitively healthy. They've got no memory impairment whatsoever, 60 years and older. Uh, a third of them had their brain positive for amyloid in their brain. So that's preclinical. And then when we went on to do more studies, we clearly showed that it, it took it, a good 20 years. So they can be amyloid positive, but it's the level of amyloid positivity. So it takes an, a good 20 years before they get to a threshold that then starts showing signs of dementia. 
So it's, 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 a, it's a relatively long journey. The exciting thing about that is we can intervene much earlier. Now, if we yeah. know that, then we can identify those people and do something about it much earlier. Right. And, not, and not just for drugs, uh, you know, uh, ABLE, Australian Imaging Biomarkers and Lifestyle, people can check them out online. Uh, this is a really a, a study that's happened. L is for lifestyle. My team in Perth focused on lifestyle. Uh, and we showed some fascinating uh, findings. Our colleagues were not as convinced that lifestyle would matter. You know, our esteemed colleagues who work on Alzheimer's, but uh, it's, it makes a big difference. And we showed, for example, diet, uh, you know, adhering to the Mediterranean diet really helps, uh, is associated with decreased amyloid load in the brain, um, which we showed that sleep is a very big factor. Uh, we showed that exercise can play a, a very important role. So we showed them, uh, we looked at each separately, uh, uh, but now we are taking an approach where we look. So lifestyle is a huge player uh, mm. in prevention of Alzheimer's. Definitely, and we'll dive into that in a moment, hopefully. Just back on the onset, uh, you, you suggested that uh, a large percent of asymptomatic patients um, over the age of 60 did show evidence of beta amyloid do you see a future where we do like some sort of scan or do you think there could be like some sort of um you know marker in our serum that's a proxy and so forth uh, obviously it's not feasible at the moment for it to scan everybody but yeah any any thoughts about the future and how we could actually sort of screen for, for yeah. those at risk yeah you're correct the scan is already there the pet amyloid scanning is available uh, but as you said, it's uh, to do community-based screening, it's not feasible. Uh, we wouldn't have the capability of doing those sort of numbers uh, with scanning, and it's very expensive. You know, we're talking about between three to five thousand dollars. So uh, the approach that my team has been taking, and we've been based leading this charge in Australia, is trying to develop a blood test, a bit like we have a cholesterol test for heart disease. Can we have a, an amyloid-like test or, or protein? or you know, reflecting Alzheimer's disease in the blood. And this is where our energies are. We're not the only ones who are doing this. The groups in Europe who we collaborate very closely with are playing a leading role. And there are groups in the United States. But we are playing a major role in this area. And we already identified uh, at least three proteins uh, that are reflecting the amyloid in the brain with great accuracy. Uh, so uh, I would envisage within the next five to ten years, I mean, I'd love it to be in, done here in Australia, uh, uh, where we'd be having a blood test for Alzheimer's. And so you know, I hope uh, someone in your readers would support our efforts in making this possible. What Where I'm going with this right now with my team is we are making our own unique antibodies uh, to those candidates that I've mentioned to you, the, the tau, the phosphotaus, the GFAP, obviously amyloid, uh, and more novel ones. Uh, they will be Australian-owned, and then we want to make our own kits so we make it available to Australians at a much lower price. So the, the, the cost will be considerably lower. You know, we're hoping it will be close to $200 a test um, if, if we can uh, do it in-house and make it make the antibodies yourself. Wow, that's we exciting. Um, I'm quite fascinated in the brains, obviously, this... Um this lump of fat in a in a dark and um, enclosed environment, but it's connected to our senses, um, sight and smell and, and hearing. And I want to touch upon some of these. Um, so firstly, there is the, some sort of retinal test that's been identified as potentially a, a um, 
a marker of early early disease progression. Is that correct? Yes. So, so my team is playing a leading role here in Australia. We we have a camera at Macquarie University, and we have a camera uh, at either at the, the Australian Alzheimer's Research Foundation, which is a great supporter of our research. Uh, it was actually purchased for us by the Lions, so you can just see how the community is coming together. Oh, the Lions wow. Alzheimer's Foundation, the Lions Clubs of Australia. It's almost half a million dollar uh, a piece of equipment. Grateful to the Lions, grateful to uh, to Macquarie for getting these instruments for us. And it's called a hyperspectral camera. Uh, so basically it looks at different wavelengths uh, to look at amyloid in the eye uh, without the use of any other agent. So previously, uh, our colleagues, uh, and we were part of the, 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 that work, uh, gave people the curry spice curcumin, uh, you know, which, which is a, it's a very powerful antioxidant in its own right, but curcumin is known to bind amyloid. So basically, uh, they were given a, a, a drink of curcumin for five days, and then their eyes were imaged. The curcumin bound the amyloid in the eye and fluoresced. And wow. so that, that's how we captured it. So it was very exciting, and we, we found it to be excellent. But uh, there was a, a, a downside, and the downside was curcumin is not an antibody. So the nonspecific positivity can be quite mm. high. And that's why we've now gone to what we call hyperspectral imaging, where we can do it without curcumin. So this is work in progress, uh, but I think uh, this will probably be the most exciting in the future because, you know, the investment is, is in that piece of machinery, initially the camera, but after that, you know, just to scan the eye, you know, would cost could cost ten dollars or less, you know, the, the person's time. So yeah, uh, ten twenty. So 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 I can I can see that being more more widely used throughout the country. So yeah, so that that's a hugely exciting area. Uh, my colleague, um, uh, Professor Morad Taibi at the University of Western Sydney, is now developing uh, uh, compounds that can bind the amyloid. So he's trying to use it, so making it more specific. And it can bind uh, these, not the plaques, the deposits, but the pre-plaques. Uh, oh, so, wow. so that's something that's exciting, new research that's uh, currently being undertaken. Uh, yeah. Very, very exciting. Yeah, they call the eye, the eye you know, is basically the mirror of the soul, but it actually reflects the brain. The, the neurons that we see in the eye uh, are reflective of the neurons in the brain. Yeah, particularly yeah. the retina of the eye. Yes. So another area, obviously connected to the brain, is our sense of hearing. I want to pivot now. There's a couple um, risk factors that have been identified uh, more recently that I, I I find fascinating, and the the one that really jumped out at me was hearing and loss of hearing, and how that's connected to the progression of Alzheimer's, and also to, I suppose, prove the concept, the uh, administration of like hearing aids is shown, as I understand, to to slow the decline. So can you describe this relationship with hearing loss and, and um, Alzheimer's? Yes, I mean, uh, there's been a, 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 an association between hearing loss and Alzheimer's for a very long time, uh, you know, for at least a decade, maybe even longer, that people were aware of this. Uh, and uh, uh, there's evidence that... Uh, people who have hearing loss uh, and don't use hearing aids decline a lot quickly. So that's good. The question is, uh, is it because uh, it's, it's due to the underlying cause of Alzheimer's or is it due to other factors? So for example, if someone who, who has hearing loss problems and cannot communicate tends to be more isolated. 
you know, social mm. isolation is a big issue with, with Alzheimer's. You know, so people really need to be socially engaged. So we still haven't worked out whether hearing loss per se uh, is causing Alzheimer's or whether it's it's like a secondary uh, impact. Well, I, I personally think it's both, but we've really got to now, uh, and, and works me undertaken. We have uh, Professor Hamid Sorabi. Um, uh, he's based in Perth at Murdoch University. Uh, who's been now uh, leading this charge. Uh, and I'm sure there are others around the world that are doing similar things. We have a hearing hub here at Macquarie University. Uh, so we need to be able to distinguish between the underlying cause. Is hearing really affecting the underlying cause of Alzheimer's disease? We, we, we are not there yet. Right. Yeah. Um, but for the moment, I suppose, with you know people and, and patients, maybe there's a bit of a, a stigma or... Um, you know, just being stubborn that people may resist investing like in hearing aids if, if they're needed. But does the research suggest that it's a really good idea to to boost um, hearing again or, or, and, and utilize these aids? Oh, most definitely. I think that that goes without question. Uh, there are some challenges, I think, in the past, and I'm not in the, in the industry, but uh, uh, that uh, uh, they can be very costly. Uh, mm. And uh, you know, we, it, 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 I think the government needs to make it more cost uh, effective for for people, and that would help a lot uh, the cost because the cost can be pretty pretty uh, heavy. Uh, but also, uh, we need to be able to educate people to use it because some people, when you talk to them, they say, "We we got a hearing aid, but I just put it in my drawer." Yeah, <laughs> that's not going to yeah. help them. So yeah. there, there's yeah. got to be a level of uh, really. Uh, being making them aware of the benefits of that for their memory, so there's yeah. no question it, it will impact on their on their memory. We, like I said, we don't yeah. know whether it's directly the the pathogenic effect or whether it's the side effect that isolation then leads to uh, a progressive decline. Uh, yeah. but that's uh, uh, definitely uh, use of it is going to really help. No question. Yes. Yeah. Um, just out of interest. Uh, Professor, I think it's Professor David Eagleman, is a neuroscientist in the United States, has recently launched these like um, vibratory hearing aids, which converts sound vibration like you wear it like a little wristwatch, and yes. and um, it basically replicates hearing. So I'd be curious to see how that, if that could um you know prevent the the decline in, in Alzheimer's in, in hearing patients. They seem to be quite novel and innovative, and I wonder if they're more cost effective and maybe more sort of easier to to use than the traditional hearing aids you know i, I think uh, yeah uh, that, that should be very interesting that's intriguing uh you know and and hand in hand with being able to hear better is being able to basically appreciate music uh and 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 there's increasing evidence and again this is the work of professor amit sarabi uh that uh music can really awaken the soul People who have, who basically uh, shut down, if you play them a particular music that uh, that has appealed to them in their younger days, they come alive. Uh, yeah. So there's a huge uh, importance of that. But you need to have that ability to hear it in the first place. True, so, true. So maybe a hearing company, they want to have like a personalized music mm. offers to people who buy hearing aids. Maybe that might be an incentive <laughs> and then they get a double benefit. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Uh, another area which I think is starting to get much more well recognised is uh, the connection between 
poor sleep and Alzheimer's. And again, is it a chicken or egg and, um, or is it an epiphenomenon of some other sort of mechanism? But again, can you describe the association between sleep and maybe poor sleep and is there sleep apnea involved um, in the increased risk and maybe the progression of Alzheimer's disease? Yes, uh, the, the sleep is a very big issue. Uh, uh, just to note that in Sydney, at the University of Sydney, uh, Professor Sharon Naismith is leading a team. There's a center that's based, funded by the NHMRC. I'm part of the center, as is Professor Rainey Smith, who is at Murdoch University now and in Perth, and uh, and part of my uh, my center. Uh, and uh, she has shown some profound effects of sleep on Alzheimer's disease, the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the, the current uh, take is six hours of good sleep is important, but you know there, there'll be an individual uh, differences that that need to be taken into account. But what uh, 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 Professor Rennie Smith clearly showed was, uh, and we kind of recognize that, but she showed a molecular base of that that when we 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 sleep badly, uh, our ability to clear to get rid of the amyloid is impaired. So it's a bit like the garbage disposal comes out. Uh, but if you're not sleeping, it doesn't come out. And so you, it just accumulates faster. And they, they reckon like a few weeks of post-sleep can have a, a very dramatic effect on, on, on the amyloid buildup in the brain. And Professor Rennie Smith then identified a specific mutation. If you had a mutation in this particular gene, which is important with clearance, uh, your risk was greater. So there are genetic factors that can right. impact uh, on, on sleep, but in, in large part, it's the behavioral approach. Uh, people are looking at melatonin. So the, uh, again, the the, uh, the center that's Sharon and Professor Ron Grunstein, who is a very prominent uh, researcher in the sleep field. He's, he's the head of the Woolcock Institute uh, uh, and has recently moved to Macquarie University, uh, have shown that melatonin can play an important role. They're still trying to work out What's the best dose for melatonin that's needed when it's needed? You know, a lot of people get up in the middle of the night and then they can't go back to sleep. So again, you know, you were talking about the technology of that vibration. We need to get more technology of how it gets delivered. Can we deliver uh, melatonin in a slow release fashion and then more gets released in the middle of the night so people then stay asleep you know, and then wake up? So there's a lot of exciting research there, but sleep is a if you talk about the pillars that put you at risk of Alzheimer's, sleep is probably the, the biggest pillar of the lot. There's no wow. question. And it's only recently being appreciated. And I said recently in the last five years. Yeah, yes. Um, and what about like the use of like CPAP machines and so forth? Any data there on the use of those and, and, and brain health? So we haven't done that. We, we, we definitely uh, 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 know of work that's been done looking at heart disease. And it definitely has a very significant impact in improving breathing, heart disease, that circulation. And heart disease is a, a risk factor for Alzheimer's. So in that sense, indirectly, it has an effect. There is some evidence to indicate that it improves memory. I mean, if you sleep well, but I don't think that we've got, uh, uh, we need yeah. more data to have some sure. conclusive answers on, on directly on that impact on memory. Well, I might look at um, cardiovascular health because, yeah, APOE I want to touch upon. It's sure. It's been known for a while. Um, probably it might be good if you could just remind the listeners about what is APOE and, and what is its link to Alzheimer's disease and, and I suppose what does it mean if you carry the, you know, the allele that is linked to Alzheimer's disease? 
Yeah, so, so APOE is, stands for apolipoprotein E. It's a protein that carries fats in the blood and also in the CSF. Uh, so it's a carrier of particular fats. Um, uh, it comes in three flavors. So we, we say it comes in a two, a three, and a four. Uh, and you can get, uh, everyone has two copies, one from mom, one from dad. Uh, the two tends to be protective. So if you have a two, people tend to get uh, a reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease, but two is fairly rare. They get other, but they have other issues with the cardiovascular situation, but generally it's protective. The three is the garden variety that most people have, like 50% or more of the population. And then there's APOE4, and that's the one that's considered to be a risk factor. And everything about APOE4 seems to be a problem in terms of Alzheimer's. So even the drugs that are being developed, APOE4 people don't seem to be able to get a benefit from them. Or they have uh, the side effects are pretty heavy. Even the, the new drug, the Canamap, is bleeding off the brain more, more readily with APOE4. But APOE4 uh, has been shown to be the major genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. So if we were to look in the literature, there's probably about 50 other genetic risk factors, but their effects are fairly minute. You've got to take them together. APOE4 single-handedly is a major genetic risk factor. And why is it so important? It accounts for half the people who have Alzheimer's disease. That's massive. It's it's like 14% in the population, and it depends what population it is, if it's a Caucasian versus, say, Japanese or Chinese. But every population, APOE4, is a major genetic risk factor. So it's a universal. And we're really going to give a, a, a strong acknowledgement to Professor, the late Professor Alan Roses, because he was, he was not an Alzheimer's researcher. He was an expert in muscle disease, and he was given a grant to look at this. And he made the connection. And the evidence wasn't very strong, but he just, so again, intuitive thinking, bring it together. He, he found this gene in chromosome 19, but when he looked at the whole uh, spectrum of genes that could be there, APOE4 was one. And uh, a colleague of his uh, basically went fishing and tried to see what bind to beta amyloid, because again, this beta amyloid was the attraction. And uh, uh, it showed that APOE4 bound to beta amyloid. So that's when he made this this hypothesis that APO, it's APOE4. Uh, and everyone around the world went and tested it, and sure enough, APOE4 has turned out to be this major genetic risk factor. Um, so, And it's also associated with heart disease. So this is where there's an interesting link between heart disease and Alzheimer's. People with APOE4 tend to have higher cholesterol levels. And so again, and, and link between cholesterol and amyloid is very intriguing. High cholesterol can be high amyloid. In the brains of people who have uh, APOE4, uh, you can see uh, much more plaques in them, much larger plaques in them. You know, it happens much earlier. So uh, this is a very uh, basically important gene to look at, and yet we still don't know how APOE4 leads to Alzheimer's. We have lots of ideas, but we still don't have an answer. What's right. very exciting about the APOE4 story that uh, in the U.S. they're now trying to do uh, using gene therapy and uh, where they, they can uh, put in uh, the other form of APOE into the brain, APOE2, and they're showing that it has a very significant benefit. This is very recent. that's come out. It's wow. A short wow. clinical trial. So, so there's no question you know, it's, it's having this effect. How yes. exactly will help with, I guess, to have better drugs uh, to target it? Uh, and yes. and uh, uh, so, like I said, um, 
uh, it's supposed to be there in everyday population, but we, and, and they say, so if you have one copy of APOE4, your risk is doubled or tripled. If you have two copies, most people don't escape disease. There are some escapees, but most people don't. So two APOE4s is a bad thing. Wow. But we also find that in families, and this is not so well recognized, in certain families, one APOE4 seems to be sufficient. So maybe something else with the APOE4. So we say, say grandpa had it, had one APOE4, had Alzheimer's, his, his, his daughter or son had it, got Alzheimer's, one E4, and the next generation. So there's an, something interesting happening with APOE4 is, is bad news. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So do, do you recommend testing people, the wider population? And part two is if you carry the APOE, um, even one copy, uh, is there any data on things you can do? Do you have to be even more vigilant on your weight and your blood pressure? What, Yeah, what can you do with that yeah, information so, once so you possess it? Yeah, so I'll just uh, step back first before I answer that question to let you know that uh, with APOE4, it's happening earlier. Like I said, uh, the pathology happened much earlier. And there was a work uh, uh, done by uh, Professor Gary Small in the United States. This is going back at least 20 years where he got people off the street uh, from you know people in their 20s, 30s onwards and uh, uh, scanned their brains. And he scanned their brains using a PET scan for glucose metabolism. So, you know, if the, mm. if the brain isn't working so well in Alzheimer's, certain parts of the brain kind of shut down. You don't see the glucose being metabolized so well. And uh, he found that people who are APOE4, no symptoms in their 30s or younger, were showing this abnormality if they had the APOE4 carrier. So that's clearly showing something's happening in our brains if you have this APOE4. So to answer your question, yes, there's so much we can do. And that's why it's, uh, they, they are more high-risk people. Uh, what we are doing here in Australia, and it's it's it was it's building up on the work. We're looking at lifestyle factors. We, uh, we've got a trial called Ours Arrow that's happening in Sydney, around Macquarie and Chatsworth, those areas, and in Perth. So we have two sites where it's happening, where we're looking at lifestyle factors. We're looking at uh, diet, Mediterranean diet, but it's the mind diet. So it brings into play combination with the DASH diet. So it keeps mm. salt down. Uh, we uh, are looking at exercise. We're looking at brain training, computerized brain training, and there are different types of computerized brain training. So one needs to be careful. Uh, uh, and we're looking at attention to vascular risk factors like your blood pressure, your cholesterol. Uh, and uh, so it's a holistic approach. Uh, but we believe that that would have a profound effect in reducing your risk of Alzheimer's. So APOE4 carriers in particular could get a benefit of this uh, if they uh, took up such a trial. In Europe, uh, 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 this approach was undertaken by uh, Professor um, uh, Mia Kivipelto in Finland, where she, she had a study called the Finger Study and uh, showed a very significant impact on preventing that cognitive decline in much older, in older age. And this is what's excited the world, but we still don't have a drug yet. The United States is doing a major study. There's at least 50 countries around the world who are doing studies now, and we're all working together. So in particular, Australia is going to be partnering very closely with the United States. We hope to pool our data. Uh, you know, we, we can only afford to do 600. We'd love to do more, but uh, it's yes. funding that very restrains our limits. The United States has got a bigger purse. They're going to look at 2,000 people. Uh, so, yeah, so, so definitely... Uh, uh, APOE4 carries, people who have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, you know, 
uh, early intervention is better. Yeah. They want to do that. Thank you. So I just want to dive a little bit further into diet. You mentioned there and up front around the Mediterranean diet. You've also published um, reviews and data on more granular um, food constituents that may offer further protection. So there's a, a signal, I think, on, was it fruit and um, polyphenols? Can you yeah, get a bit more detailed on some of the individual items or constituents that may be yeah, beneficial? So, so, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say particular uh, food groups, fruits, but uh, what we did do is when we looked at the Mediterranean diet, and that's why the ABLE study is such a powerful study because people have got brain imaging. So we, that, that's what we reference against. You know, if you eat a particular food or have a particular lifestyle, how does that impact on your amyloid load in the brain? So you know, that, that was our reference uh, point. Uh, and, uh, and then when we showed that uh, people who adhered to a Mediterranean diet had, the, had a very significantly reduced levels of amyloid, we then wanted to break that down further and look at see what food groups may be important. And we found that the one when we drilled down was the fruit. The fruit in particular, fruit and vegetables, but fruit in particular uh, had this, the best benefit, the greatest benefit. And people tend to sometimes worry about fruit because it's got a bit more sugar in it, but it also has polyphenols, so these are antioxidants. And to give you a bit of history, at the time when we found amyloid in the 1980s, I was the very first person to show that the brain was under oxidative stress. That is, uh, you know, if you think of it for the layperson, uh, is that uh, uh, if, you, if you bite an apple, you expose it to the air, it goes rusty. The brain was rusting. So uh, to combat that, it needs antioxidants. Uh, and we still haven't been able to uh, get uh, antioxidants like a treatment to the brain yet. For example, uh, curcumin is a very powerful antioxidant and has lots of benefits in the body, but we can't get it into the brain mm. uh, at high enough doses. And now we're looking at an approach where we call intranasal delivery of curcumin <laughs> to the brain. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're testing it in animal models first. But uh, polyphenols can get into the brain. And so that's our, our interpretation is that the polyphenols in the fruit are being highly protected. Um, uh, it's oxidative stress, you see. Right. That makes sense. So, so what you eat matters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I want to give a plug for Maggie Beer, you know, the famous Maggie Beer who cooks such beautiful food. She and I collaborated together, and I wrote the first 50 pages of a book called Maggie's Recipe for Life, where we talk about all these different food right. groups, uh, and also spices, you know, like curcumin was one, but there are other spices that are very important. And she really beautifully incorporated these particular food groups into her recipes. Yeah. So people should check out Maggie's Recipe for Life. It's, it's, okay, it's I'll, I'll get the links for that. Um, one area you've published on, and maybe it's more sort of speculation, there's a lot of interest in sort of the wellness area around uh, medium-chain triglycerides as an alternative fuel for for neurons. It sounds like you're quite um, optimistic that this may have some benefit, at least once that um, the, the pathology is sort of advanced. What's yes. your Yeah, yes. can you explain yeah. MCTs? Uh, so uh, M MCTs are medium-chain triglycerides, so you know, uh, they're 
So if you look at, uh, at fatty acids, they're carbon, com- carbon chains. Uh, the longer ones are like 16 and 18, and people see them as not being good for your health generally. Uh, but the medium chain ones are 12 and shorter, usually 10, 8, and 6 uh, lengths. And these get metabolized to form ketone bodies that the brain can use. And we've, we've known for a long time, uh, and I mentioned here about the glucose metabolism in the brain, you know, the APOE4 carriers, uh, they're showing uh, a diminished glucose utilization even at a much earlier age. So the question we are, uh, we're, we're putting out there is, what can the brain use uh, to, to basically compensate for this reduction in, in glucose utilization? Is there another energy source? Is there another source of petrol for, to feed the brain and keep the cells alive? And ketone bodies definitely fit that bill. Uh, there's there's work being done by Professor Steve Pinane in Canada. He's playing a leading role in this area, uh, where they're looking at these uh, medium chain fatty acids. And there, there are some there's a company in Singapore that's also doing this work. For example, they show it's very important in, in epilepsy, very beneficial. And the work by uh, uh, Dr. Mary Newport, who pioneered this work, you know, she she tried on her husband. She showed that uh, people babies are given this as a source of energy. Uh, you know, an infant formula, and then she applied it to giving to her husband who had dementia. Uh, so I'm very uh, optimistic that this is going to be something really beneficial uh, for people who uh, in prevention. And, and again, there's been a lot of negativity, a lot of the cardiovascular or the people, especially in the United States, were anti, anti-MCT. Uh, and, and the biggest source of MCTs is from coconut oil. So they were mm-hmm. particularly against coconut oil, so funding was almost impossible. I, right. I've been pioneering this effort in Australia because I wanted to objective research to really show the merits or otherwise. Uh, but yes. our evidence is indicating that it clearly uh, improves uh, the memory. We, we want to do a, a full trial. We still haven't got the funding to do that, but I'm very confident. And also, I'm very passionate while I'm focusing on early diagnosis prevention. What are we doing for people who already have Alzheimer's? Why are people so agitated in aged care facilities you know, when they get into the disease? And part of it is if the brain is starved of glucose, that may be a factor. If they're given uh, uh, ketone bodies that can feed their brain, give them some some energy, uh, maybe they'd be in a, in, a, in a better state of mind. So, you know, this is potentially this could help people who already have the disease. When we talk about particular nutritional things uh, besides this MCT, which, which I'm passionate about, um, uh, there, there is another nutritional uh, agent that's been proven uh, that it's showing a great benefit, and that's called, it's a combination, it's vitamin B complexes, it's uh, omega-3 fatty acids, which we know are good for the brain, uh, and it's in the right combination, and the, and, and the drink is called Suvenator. And uh, my colleague and friend, Professor uh, Hartmann in, in Germany, was leading this work. It's available, uh, and, uh, you know, people in aged care uh, are, and people with dementia are seeing a benefit. So it really, I mean, it's not a cure by any means, but it really helps improve the quality of life of people. Uh, and I think it may have a benefit in um, uh, in, in prevention. It, it clearly has been shown that people with MCI, mild cognitive impairment, uh, their progression to Alzheimer's disease is significantly uh, reduced. Uh, uh, and that's uh, there have been two big clinical trials that have come out to demonstrate that. So Suvenet, the company's called Nutritia, and people can get it. So that's probably the only one that's 
probably got the most evidence-based people. Yeah. Oh, good. I'll, I'll check that out. Uh, I might use the MCT as a, a segue to quickly touch upon the last area I'm curious on that you, you've published a bit. And again, I didn't get a chance to read all your papers, but the, the abstracts and everything really um, piqued my interest. It was around, and I, first of all, I'm curious on how you pronounce it. I think I might butcher it every time, but autophagy or autophagy and mitophagy or mitophagy, this idea that our our cells have in, cells have this sort of internal cleaning system and in sort of, again, popular views that it's promoted if you fast and so forth that it's, it has this sort of almost a binary thing that you, you switch on autophagy, autophagy, and once you eat, you you diminish that and we want more autophagy to, to help sort of eat up all the, the debris. But it looks like, again, there's nuance and you um, have some interest and some views. So can you, yeah, describe, firstly, <laughs> how do you pronounce it? And, um, yeah, can you describe autophagy slash autophagy? Yeah, so autophagy is a, is, is a means by which the, uh, the body eats up toxic stuff. You know, it helps clear it, get rid of it. And I think as we age, our ability to... To, again, again, a bit like the sleep thing, clearing amyloid, uh, uh, our, uh, our systems in the body seem to be slowing down, at clearing, uh, at clearing the toxic and taking it up. And uh, I just want to state that autophagy is not just an issue with Alzheimer's, um, you know, because amyloid builds up there, but it's also an issue with um, childhood dementia, which you know most people hadn't heard of till recently. These are babies. Uh, you know, by the time they're three or four, they've lost the ability to, they're losing words and, and getting dementia. Uh, but it's different uh, compounds that are building up in their brains uh, as a result of particular genetic mutations. They need to get one from mom, one from dad to be able to get the effect. But there are some families where there's two children who have this. So it's very hard, heartbreaking. Uh, so looking at autophagy and looking at drugs that can enhance autophagy will not only help Alzheimer's, but will help uh, childhood dementia. And I really want to shout, give a shout out for Dr. Prashant Bharadabhaj, who uh, from ECU, a, a member of my team, a young, dynamic uh, researcher who is now leading this charge um, uh, in, in, at our center. Uh, so uh, I see that this having a huge amount of uh, Possibilities. There was a drug that uh, was used um, um, probably 10 years ago called Dimabon, which has uh, enhances autophagy. And it was a, a drug uh, that was uh, studied in Russia, and they showed a very profound effect. But when they when they tested in America, for some reason, they didn't get a result. And they, they then thought maybe the Russian uh, data was, was not uh, as accurate. But we've repeated that uh, under in vitro conditions. And when I say we, I mean Dr. Uh, Prashant Bharadavaj and showing it to have a profound effect on autophagy. So what he's looking for is looking for compounds even more powerful than Dimabom that will enhance autophagy. So that's space we should be looking out for. Uh, definitely that's a very important role. Yeah. Is, is there a double-edged double sword to this though? There is there some caution on excessive or autophagy? I, I think with anything... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a double edge sword, so it's got to be controlled. It's got to be modulated. Yep, right. that makes sense. Come on, come on, come on. Yes, great. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. got, uh, yeah. So I think that that's the that's yep. the thing for any drug. I mean, the same applies for any mm. drug that we have, as you probably know. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, yeah, we've had a 
a, a tour very detailed. I really appreciate your time. Um, just yes. like to wrap up. So um, <laughs> I suppose I, I've skipped over the first question, but I think it's pretty self-evident. Um, this is obviously a big problem, Alzheimer's. Like we've got an aging population uh, that's an, at the onset maybe years before the signs of symptoms. I don't know. Is there anything you just want to say overarching around like just underscore this is a, a critical area that needs, yeah, as you illustrate, sounds more yeah. funding, et cetera? Most definitely. I mean, uh, you know, we have over 400,000 Australians with, with dementia now, and this figure is going to more than double in, in, in less than 25 years. And every time we, we make a prediction, we are always wrong because it's even more rapid than we thought. Uh, so, you know, we, we have got an epidemic on our hands. Uh, unfortunately, our funding needs to be uh, increased very significantly. The United States is doing it right. They're putting a huge amount of money in funding uh, for Alzheimer's. Uh, Australia needs to do the same. And it's a small investment. Maybe that $2 billion that uh, our, our, our minister is, is trying to get out from the people who've got uh, you know, the superannuation funds, maybe you should put that into Alzheimer's research. But, but it's very needed. It's essential. Uh, otherwise, we're going to cripple the economy. Uh, you know, if we yeah. don't, and, and 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 hurt so many people. So the burden of disease, dementia is is the number one burden of disease in sixty five years and older. Yeah, yeah, and and for the younger people, I think it's that then I've seen data that's the, their main concern as they get older. It's it's surpassed cancer, I think. Is it? it it's exactly, no, it's, it's surpassed everything. So it's it's the it's the second leading cause of death in Australia. For all uh, for males and females, but for women, it's the leading cause of death. You know, and and we haven't paid enough attention to to these gender differences. It's, the U.S. now is starting to provide some funding for people to look into that. But you know, that's important. So for every one uh, 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 male Australian who's got Alzheimer's, there's two women. That's huge. That's a huge difference mm. uh, yeah. that, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Uh, so. Throughout this podcast, you've mentioned so many different names. It really shows me, you know, science is a team sport, and you've got an amazing network. But you've also gone discussed Lions clubs and Maggie Beer. Uh, what about? Yeah, is there anything we can do? You know, the who aren't researchers. Is there anything that can help sort of shift the needle and raise awareness? Or you know, if we were to donate money, is it to the Lions Club? How, how do we? How do we help? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you know, I'm so grateful to many people in the community. You all make such a difference. I, 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 you know, there's an 85-year-old lady who heard me talk, and she, uh, she, uh, her name is Pamela, and she talked at, at, the, at the museum here in Sydney, and, and she contacts me the next day and says she wants to give me her body. <laughs> oh, really? And then she's, at the age of 85, she's become an ardent supporter. She's got Rotary involved. So community makes a big difference. So through your network, that would be fantastic. Uh, obviously, funding is critical. If people want to make a donation to the Lions Alzheimer's Foundation, uh, or the Australian Alzheimer's Research Foundation, uh, you know, that would really help our research because, you know, the uh, the camera that we were talking about, that was funded by the Lions. Uh, we've got a blood machine that's changed the way in which now you can diagnose Alzheimer's disease. Brilliant. All right, okay. I'll put all those links in there. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much, well, Rob. I enjoyed uh, talking um, to you and we should maybe have a follow-up at the later stage if your listeners are interested. Oh, yeah, I was going to suggest that. That'd be so good. It's been such a thrill and pleasure. And congratulations on such an amazing career and the work you've done really sort of set the foundation. Yeah, hopefully the fruits, you know, of your labor around diagnosis and early prevention will, will you know, 
bear fruit um, pretty soon and we can help start tackling this uh, horrific condition. And, and, and you correctly said it's a team effort. It's it's uh, it's uh, my team of researchers, our collaborators throughout Australia, even globally, and the community. The community is our, our, our biggest asset. I think if we didn't have the community, the Lions Alzheimer's Foundation or the Australian Alzheimer's Research Foundation, my team would have been long dead uh, because right. the funding that comes in through, you know, grants, uh, you know, the big gaps, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. <laughs> and you can't yeah. do research that so appreciate your, your your offer to let your listeners uh, consider helping our, our research efforts. Oh, Thanks very much. Thank Thanks you. Nathan. All the best. Bye. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.